Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. President Trump is joining some of the most incredible people in history being arrested today. Um, Nelson Mandela was arrested, served time in prison. Jesus, Jesus was arrested and murdered by the Roman government. Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's edition of The Group Chat. I'm Richard Chambers, joined as always by Zara King. Hello. And Gavin Riley. What up? Guys, how are you doing? Good. Very well, how are you? Yeah, I'm in good form. What is your view on what is the most controversial artwork of all time? To launch things off (laughs) into a direction. God, I wish you'd given us advance notice of this. I didn't want to. Trying to think of what is the most controversial artwork of all time. I mean, there's people who now think that Michelangelo's David is some sort of pornographic... Actually, good point, yeah. ...masterpiece, but it's not like... It's it's just not. Uh, The most... Controversial artwork of all time. Tell you what, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not spice bag, is it? It's not spice bag. Yeah. What is that? You have to talk amongst yourselves when I try and think about what the most controversial. I don't artwork have of one. It's not important. It's not. It's not important. It was just because yeah. of the the nature of the discussion that we've had. Obviously, like spurred by the, the the conversation around the ending of the eviction ban, has thrust the work of spice bag uh, to the front of the national mm. media agenda, um, and a lot of people are. First of all, there's people on the pro-ending the eviction ban side who are like, this is a disgrace, mm. uh, this artwork, which of course depicted Gardaí involved in um, overseeing an eviction. Yeah, mm. uh, Mod- Modern day Gardaí implementing a famine era eviction. Yep. So it's supposed to be drawing parallels between those two circumstances, mm-hmm. which is the purpose of art. Yeah. So fine. It's art. Yeah. Political art has been a feature of all art mm. for as since art began. Uh, particularly in the 20th and 21st centuries, Guernica by Pablo Picasso has been thrown around a lot in recent I, times. I, by the way, I have in the meantime thought of what I think is the most controversial artwork of all time, but I actually don't know if I'm allowed to say its name on what is ostensibly a family podcast. We'll get editorial guidance. We'll, we'll, get, we'll, we'll come back. Tune into part four when Gavin reveals the most controversial <laughs> yeah. artwork of all time. But what did you make of this, Sarah? The fact that this became uh, the, mm. the debate almost was around the yeah. artwork rather than around the impacts of the ending of the eviction ban. Yeah, so I was working over the weekend, so I was sort of, this sort of landed on my brief at the weekend and I was just kind of looking at the tweets and the outrage of, of the artwork and thinking, I've kind of missed the point here, folks. Like, we've missed the point. Um, I'll be honest with you, like, I wasn't personally offended by it. Um, I didn't, I, I guess, look, I understand the sensitivities around the AGSI came out and said that they were highly offended by it. But, you know, Gardaí are present at evictions at times, albeit to keep the peace, mm. they would argue. And so they are present there. So their presence in the picture wasn't totally beyond a reasonable, you know, expectation if you were depicting an eviction. Just, I suppose, uh, the role that they were um, suggested to have played in it, perhaps the AGSI felt, was that they were coming across as being somewhat um, aggravating or something. But obviously, you know, the role is, is to keep the peace in those settings. Look, I kind of thought, like, I was working on Sunday and I was interviewing alone about the number of older people who are yeah. becoming homeless and then I also met a gentleman in town while I was working who came up to me showed me the eviction notice that he'd been served on his home in East Wall he has 1900 euro a month to spend and he can't get somewhere to live so he's bought a tent and like outdoor gear and I was kind of going 
this is really more important, to be honest, mm. than like the outrage on Twitter. I, I, I saw that interview that you, you did with him. We yeah. broadcast it on Sunday on the news at 5.30. Yeah. And I, I was, I'm not usually as kind of shook by yeah. stuff like that. But when you're talking about someone who has an income and, and has a family and has children and needs to be able to house those kids because of the, the custody arrangements, like there's a guy on a decent wage yeah. who just can't get anything. And, and his, his life is in danger of unravelling because of this yeah. one thing. And he's a single father as well. And like, this is another thing I'd like to say about that, actually. He's a single father and he said a big part of being able to maintain his relationship with his children has been having a home to bring them to and to have them for his access days, what is it, two or three days a week. Mm. And like without that now, he said his time with his kids is going to be limited. And, you know, he's not going to have his kids sleeping in the tent with them, obviously. You know, that won't mm. be ideal for the family. Um, but it's just the fact that he's so much money to spend. And like we met that man on the street. Like we were actually interviewing alone and he came over and spoke to Joni, our camera woman. And Joey said, you might want to talk to this man. And I had a conversation with him and he brought up all the documentation on his phone, showed me all the notices, um, yeah. all the eviction. And I, I was like, oh, my God. And he said, I've, I've bought all the outdoor gear and I'm, I'm going to be sleeping on the streets at the end of the month. And I just thought, wow. And then, you know, contrast that then with all this outrage on Twitter about the, the artwork. I was like, this is not the point. It's I'm actually jarring thing, really, yeah. when you put it that it's way, when you point. actually do contrast the yeah. human situation of it, like, We've all, I'm sure, been sent on stories now over the last couple of days. Last week, I interviewed with Jess Carlin, who is a renter. Mm. She's out of her place in the month of May. Has a good relationship, actually, with her landlord. But just the idea of trying now to find somewhere to live. And it is. It's the impact you mentioned on uh, the guy you were talking to, on his kids. This is another situation where she has a young daughter who might have to move school because she might not be able to get somewhere, which is even relatively close mm. to the place where her daughter is currently in school. When you look at the human cost of this situation and the rental and the housing crisis, it does seem a little bit bizarre that we are talking about, again, a piece of art, which is meant to provoke. It is meant to provoke conversation and yet people are losing yeah. their, their absolute mindset. I just think, just by the way, because I wasn't aware that those were the circumstances of how you came across mm. the, the, the guy who you spoke to for the, the news at 5.30 on yeah. Sunday. And actually the idea that it wasn't someone, you know, you regularly do your, your calls out. Call you, you out, yeah. on Instagram, you go, are you affected by this? You know, drop me a line, get in touch and we might arrange something. Mm. I presumed that's where it had come from. No. Like the idea that you were just out and about with Joni yeah. and a man came up to you and said, these are my circumstances. And yeah. we're like, that's... Like, but that's how commonplace it is. This is my point. Like, yeah. that it's, it's not a case of that you get some people coming in and this is a, a slightly disproportionate or, or somewhat extreme scenario. This is a man who you bumped into on the street yeah. who said, this is my life. I've bought the outdoor gear because I reckon I'm going to be living in a tent. And one thing you said there, which actually I want to say as well, is he's so nice about his landlady. And like we hear this conversation about demonising landlords and you said your renter had a great relationship with the landlady. Yeah. Like this gentleman has been like so complimentary about the landlady. He said, look, I, I lived in the house 13 years. She gave me plenty of notice. Like he acknowledges he's had loads of notice. There's just nowhere to rent. Like mm. there's literally no houses. Oh. And he totally appreciates that she needs the house back because her children are going to college in September and they need somewhere to live as well. So mm. he's been, you know, totally not demonising his landlady, but just recognises that the crisis is so severe and so serious now that he physically cannot get a house with just under two grand a month to spend. Yeah. Um, on the, the the political artwork thing, like I understand to a point like the AGSI is feeling like they are sort of unfairly smeared. Oh, they're entitled to have a view on it. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. look, it, it's a very it's a very anxious time for so many people, and the idea that the guards would be seen as enforcers of that anxiety is is maybe a, a level of of unease that I fully understand that they're entitled to and they're, they're right to just voice their objections or to try and clarify exactly what the role is of Gardaí in enforcing that kind of stuff. 
Uh, and Drew regards, Harris did say today, though, that Gardaí wouldn't be like that. It's a civil matter that evictions are civil matters, and yeah. Gardaí wouldn't play a role in eviction. So effectively, it's only if, if there's a court involved. If there's a heated moment, that basically the guards are called in to keep the peace was the term that yeah. Drew Harris mm. used today. So, but that's what I'm saying. Like it's not beyond the realms to see Gardaí present at evictions mm. for that very reason to keep the peace. Yeah. So that's why their presence in the photograph wasn't so jarring to no, me. Certainly, no. I didn't. Well, that, that that specific instance in which yeah. the Gardaí were depicted, that was North Frederick Street, which is a very high profile incident, which mm. the police ombudsman did actually criticise. You know, the guardian yeah. question so, for well, the presence at that. Well, there you go. That That's why it's a double-edged sword because, in firstly, it, it is a fair representation of what guardies sometimes are involved with in yeah. enforcement, but also if the guards feel like that's an unfair an example to lean on because it's not representative of their duties on an everyday basis, you can understand their, their qualms about that as well. Um, on the, the political art aspect and some of the hubbub that it caused, um, I know you're a big West Wing fan, uh, Rich. I'm not, not so sure about your commitment to it these days. Uh, <laughs> season 2, episode 6, Shibboleth. Anyone mm. who's been brushing up on their their Old Testament references will know what a shibboleth is. Mm. Shibboleth is basically some sort of cultural reference point that helps you to tell apart one group from another. Uh, in the Bible, it was one group who pronounced the word shibboleth versus another tribe who said sibboleth. Mm. They pronounced their mm-hmm. S's differently. I think this artwork has been a real political shibboleth because if you see that art and you think, God, look look at the, the unfortunate people who are now being removed from a home and have nowhere else to go, that's one category of society. Mm. There's been another category and a lot of them have been coalition TDs who think who see that and go, what an unfair smear on the guards. And look, it's it's fair and it's legitimate and we've just acknowledged that it's reasonable to have some concerns about just how the guards have been depicted in an instance like this. But if your concern is about the depiction of the guards and not about the social effects of the people who are being left homeless, I think maybe you need to just sort of reorient what your concerns are here. You know? Yeah, I would actually agree with you on that. And I would also say that when things like this happen, this is from a very, this is a kind of a wonky sort of um, inside baseball journalistic sort of thing. Mm. I think we need to be cautious sometimes about the feeling that the guards are above scrutiny in some way about these things. I think that there is almost, a, there's almost at times in public life, and this goes for politics as well, that the guards are above any scrutiny whatsoever. And that there is that, that level of insult that actually happened over that artwork can be a bit of a chilling effect from that that yeah. the guard like if, if you're having guardian guarder representative associations which again we say they absolutely are entitled to be object to this but if they set the tone for what can be discussed and what level of scrutiny can be assigned onto the you know the state police force mm. Mm. we should be able to do that mm. without fear of you know anything without fear or favour we should be able to do that but moving on from the actual artwork thing because there was actually development today and it was highlighted by the Dublin Inquirer uh, around the Residential yeah. Tenancies Board and whether or not the Department of Housing actually knew how many notices of termination had actually been yeah. sanctioned by the end of last year. And, and this, this is quite sensitive because people, if, if they are paying attention to everything from that week, um, the coalition leaders decided in principle on the Monday night to allow the evictions ban to lapse. Yeah. And on the Tuesday, it was signed off by the rest of Cabinet. Dara O'Brien came out, did a press conference, confirmed that this was the plan, that the government would put other supports in place, but that the evictions ban was going to be allowed to lapse. And I specifically, and our colleague Christina Finn from the Journal, um, mm. specifically asked Dara O'Brien, did he know or had he got figures to suggest how many people would be affected by the lifting of the ban? And he said he didn't, that the figures were still being compiled by the RTB and that they would be supplied in due course anyway. As it happens, the RTB supplied those figures three days later. And the figures took us all by surprise because at the time they were reporting 4,741 notices to quit, yep. which is like mm. three times higher than what you'd get in any other three-month period of the year. 
And what's been uh, identified by the Dublin Inquirer, and fair play to them for reporting this because this is genuinely really good work, was that the there appears to have been some correspondence between the department, not the minister, we should stress, but mm-hmm. the department and the RTB looking for the release of those figures to be delayed. And as it happens, of course, they were delayed until after the government the announced the lifting of the evictions ban. And it raises questions, therefore, as to so whether the department the, were aware of the figures. The department but asked were them not to release them until afterwards. Uh, they were aware of them at least on a preliminary basis, and the department has confirmed that that they're always mm. given these things on a kind of a contingency basis, subject to final approval or, or compilation. So, at some level, the department was aware that figures like this were coming down the tracks and that they were going to be enormous. So the question is. Well, Dara Bryan says he wasn't aware. Is that tenable? And mm. even if he wasn't aware, and you have to take a good faith, he says he wasn't aware. How implausible is it that the government would suddenly be made aware, actually, that there's enormous levels of evictions coming down the tracks, but that nobody thought to tell the minister just when they were considering such a seismic but policy shift? Is it not the most obvious question as to like what's the knock-on going to be of this? And Dara O'Brien was asked about this on radio because I heard him being asked on radio several times how many evictions did you anticipate were coming? And he said, oh, I don't know. We actually don't have that figure. But you're, ta- mm. you're saying now that the figure was the, floating the around. The department at least had the figure and it may not have been the final figure, but they were given a ballpark indication of how many would apply. Now, mm. it's possible the government would still have made the same decision on the basis of principle anyway. You wouldn't necessarily look at the metrics. You can make that argument. I think so, yeah. But the they probably idea... would because their principle was that like their whole thing has been that, you know, extending it was kicking the can down the road yes, yeah. anyway. So yeah. you'd imagine... And, and that's, that's, that's a rational and plausible argument. It's mm. one that people will object with, but it, it's an argument that they're entitled to make. But the idea that the figures were there somewhere within the department and that the minister was not made privy to them is, is a tough one for a lot of people to swallow. It is, because it would have had a big impact, not just in terms of the political debate in the Dáil around the ending of the eviction ban, but in terms of the public sphere and how people perceive the ending of the eviction ban. If they know that more than 9,000 tenancies are coming to an end in mm. the coming months, well, that does shape how people look at the ending of the eviction ban yeah. at the end of the month of March. Yeah. Now, it was in the end as well, just to stress the RTB's view on this. The RTB is committed to publishing timely and accurate data in the public domain. This is an article by Ellen Coyne. Uh, she writes that a spokesperson for the RTB declined to answer three times when asked if the public debate on the lifting of the eviction ban had any influence on its decision to delay publishing statistics on eviction notices, which this is a bad situation for the RTB to be even... Mm put into because they're supposed to be the, like the, the, the watchdog for the rights of tenants yeah. mm-hmm. and they may now have been an unwitting part of a ploy to leave tenants out in the rear. One situation that was brought to my attention and I know Zara you have one as well mm. is around because um, again it, it's focusing on because when whenever you put out call outs on social media whether it's Twitter or Instagram and you're looking for people in their situations regarding renting you'll have landlords or people who are related to landlords getting in touch with you yeah. and a lot of them are annoyed at the general teener and they feel like they're being demonised and whatnot. But I actually had an interesting uh, engagement with a landlord who remain, remain anonymous for now. They wanted to remain anonymous. They talk, they wrote to me about a tenant of theirs uh, who is formerly homeless, has three children, one with special needs. Um, he has a place in an autism class in a local school, been on the housing list for years. They've been in the house that she rents to them for three years now. Now, she wants to sell the house to the local county council to allow the tenant to stay on in situ as per the scheme. Mm-hmm. She got an independent valuation of the house done, €350,000, uh, which is below the current market value, €360,000. The council in question offered €50,000 below that price. Now, we've, I've, I've put this to the council in question. We're still waiting for a response from them. So if you're below the market value, the independent valuation, €50,000 below that independent valuation, um. That's very hard for any landlord kind of or any property owner to, to actually that. do that. Mm. Yeah. 
if the house is worth something, you would expect then that the council in question or local authority in mm-hmm. question would pony yeah. up and do the right thing. It, and that. It seems to go against the principle of what the government had announced as well, which is that they were going to look for an independent valuer and then they would offer you that price rather yeah. than trying to undercut what the value is. And it is. It's a problem as well because this is something and she, she, she the, the person who raised this issue with me says that she had heard of other situations where other landlords who, were, again, were stressing that they want to do the right thing and mm-hmm. do the right thing by tenants that they know and they like and they know they're in difficult situations they don't want them to be out there struggling to find somewhere to live. Yeah. That when you do the right thing you expect the authorities who are in place to, you know, oversee this process should be available and ready to go and do the right thing as well. Yeah, so the message I got echoes exactly what Richard is saying there. I got a message last night from a woman who owns a house in Offaly and she's saying that, um, like that, she's renting it to the same woman who is a single mother with two kids for many, many years. Um, She said, look, you know, we're at a situation where basically they can't keep up with the mortgage and they need to sell the house. So they want to obviously sell it with the tenants in situ or ideally they want the council to buy the house. So they got in touch uh, with the council in relation to that and they said... um, the, the house from us. We were advised that in order for the house to be considered for purchase, we would first need to give our tenant a notice to quit. We were trying to avoid the trauma of this for her. It would cause her huge anxiety. And like I said, she has been a great tenant. I'm just telling you all of this to highlight the utter madness out there and the fact that the government aren't really giving true facts about what's happening in the reality. Mm. So that does echo exactly what you were saying. Like this lady is trying to sort of keep her tenant in her home, not cause her any undue stress, single mother with two kids. Uh, and this is, you know, this person is a landlord, but isn't a big landlord, only one, mm. one house for rent, yeah. whatever. And, yeah. you know. Th- this is going to be a feature now because if, if people, if the government had stressed at the start when they were lifting the eviction ban that everything is going to be in place to allow these things mm. to, you know, to try and eliminate the risk of homelessness in certain situations, the more stories that are coming out like this, that is hugely damaging yeah. for the government if that continues to happen. Also damaging for the government would be the situations as highlighted in the Irish Times during the week where a landlord who said, effectively said they were selling up but then the property ended up on Airbnb. Mm. That's not good at all. Zara, there was one thing you, before we move on, um, there was one issue that you also highlighted uh, or were looking to highlight during the week yeah. was around the situation around in pets in particular. Yeah, it was inter- again another message I had gotten from a family um, a couple, two small children um, in a rented house can't get anywhere. Both of them are working full time um, can't get somewhere to live and she was saying in the email that you know she's going to go and have to go back and move in with her parents into the box room at her parents' house with the two small kids and her husband will have to couch surf with friends and um, she said the saddest part of all is that they're probably going to have to surrender their little dog to the local dog shelter um, and I spoke to the DSPCA about this during the week and they said actually they're seeing an awful lot of that now that there's a waiting list of over 800 pets waiting to be surrendered into the DSPCA alone that was a figure from last week um, and they're seeing examples of coming in in the morning and dogs are tied to the gate of the DSPCA because people are in such distress um, there was somebody I was filming there during the week and somebody came into the reception with their dog and said I'm about to be made homeless I, I cannot take care of this dog but I love them so much can you take them and they went and looked to see if they had a space to take the dog from the lady because the process I should say by the way if you know you're going to be becoming homeless or you know that perhaps you're going to be moving to rental accommodation where you can't bring your pet the advice is to get in contact in advance and as early as possible so if you get a notice to quit basically and you think maybe you can't take your pet with you from the time you get that notice that's the time you should begin the process of surrendering your animal if you you know if you don't have to in the end you end up keeping them all well and good but to put the wheels in motion to do it as early as possible I didn't know even when you you talked about covering that to us when we were planning all of this yeah I didn't know there was a waiting list. Neither did I. Mm. Neither did I. And that's because the DSPCA, I suppose, their mandate or their priority is to take, take care of animals that have been um, abused or, you know, have come out of difficult situations. Yeah. So that would be the top tier priority, I suppose, animals that are being um, 
yeah, you know, mistreated. A, a mistreated yeah, this kind of elective or voluntary. Exactly, surrender. but of course, you know, when it comes down to it, then you know they're they're going to look after every animal they can. But eight hundred animals waiting to be surrendered is just really shocking. Now, Gavin, uh, you were on the radio as you obviously usually are uh, of a Sunday morning. I tend to be in a Sunday morning. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, you did something a little bit different though for what was World Autism Day, part of Autism Awareness Month. Yeah. It was, it was quite a remarkable piece of broadcasting, I have to say. Well, th- thanks for saying so. Um, we, in this line of work, it's always a very tricky balance uh, to not use the, the platform and the low level clout that we've got uh, in this industry to sort of start using stuff or to start throwing your weight around for things that are like deeply personal or things that are actually materially could cause you personal benefit. Um, but last Sunday was was a day in which you sort of reach a point where you go, actually, there's something that needs to be called out here. So long story short, and I don't want to make too personal a thing of it because the, the point of the piece, if people have seen it, it's on my, my Twitter and Instagram, they can see it there. Um, one of my children it has autism and I just did a piece about things that you ought to be aware of when it comes to trying to navigate the world when you've got a child with autism and trying to access the various therapies and procedures that are supposed to be available through the public system, but which are often very difficult Mm. to do so. And I won't recap the the whole thing now. People can go and watch it back if they want to. Um, But there was a couple of things that really struck me just about the, the, the scale of replies. And firstly, even just as a precursor, you know, we were talking in the last part about the Sometimes when we do call-outs, we're looking for people to, to volunteer as case studies uh, on different things, whether it's handing over a family pet or struggling to find new accommodation. I didn't go looking in the aftermath for people to, to get in touch if they'd had similar experiences. Yeah. They just came forward. But they, they just came forward in like such extraordinary numbers. And like it was really, really, really eye-opening and really striking to see how many people are going through similar challenges are, are just finding the system so tough to navigate um, and who basically seem to have thought that they were the only ones that even though the system is universally set up and it's universally hard to break through for anyone that people who are fighting this fight don't ever really seem to think that there's anyone else doing it that mm. we all, everyone sort of feels like they're walking the road solo when in truth there's thousands of people who are all making the same solo journey we're all lined up one after the other but we all think that we're making the journey alone and it was really striking to see how many people um got in touch to sort of express that and that they they got real solace from hearing someone else give voice to the same sorts of challenges that they're facing and and I'm glad that they did so yeah like it's it, it it can be something to see that you're not the only person or not the only family in the same in 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 this boat in this particular boat with these particular difficulties but at the same time as well gav i suppose it highlights the scale of the and the breadth of the issues associated with it, which haven't been properly addressed for a long, long time. Well, this was the, the second takeaway point was that uh, one thing which I was really genuinely surprised by is that even knocking around Leinster House and the doors on recess this week, so there's not many politicians around, but you're walking the corridors and you pass a politician and they take you aside and go, God, I heard your piece of the weekend. It was it was really powerful. It's probably more powerful coming from someone who isn't a politician like you than from, from a TD or a senator like me. Mm-hmm. And so many of them like confiding in me that actually they or members of their extended family are are fighting the same fights as well. And uh, people were they like government TDs or opposition or what was the story? A little of both. A little of both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And like what what's almost demoralizing? You, you try not to be demoralized by it, but what's demoralizing is that when you see so <laughs> many people who are in positions of power or who are adjacent to positions of power or who have influence on yeah. those who have power. 
And there is such a universal desire to sort all this out, to make sure that there's enough therapists, to make sure that the system is scaled up or has the capacity to deal with the number of people who need its services. And they're all so desperate to try and make it happen. And for years, it's been just as it is now and appears to be unfixable. And every time someone new goes in and really wants to get to the bottom of it and try and just really nail this once and for all, and they never seem to be able to do it. Like the, the previous Minister for Disabilities was Finian McGrath. Finian McGrath also has, has a child with a disability. He, he went in there with all the best will in the world, real, loads of gumption, want to go in and fix this. Mm. And in the time that he was in office, the four years that he was there, wasn't able to do so. Anne Rabbit, uh, who is the current Junior Minister for Disabilities, uh, has been madly keen to try and meet with the local HSE teams, to try and meet with them individually, not have umbrella meetings with national management. She wants to meet with the people on the ground to figure out how you can make this work. And was originally barred from even meeting. The HSE stood in her way and said, no, you can't be tying up their time. We don't want you meeting with these people. Mm. She was like, well, I'm, I'm the minister. The minister, I can so do what I want. Like, let me. Yeah. And eventually, to his credit, Stephen Donnelly intervened and said, no, you're, you're going to meet with the minister who runs your service. Mm. Um, but she has all the best will in the world and has sp- spoken to her about it. And she really wants to, to scale things up and make things right, but hasn't been able to do it either. Uh, and it's, it's quite depressing to think that so many people who have notional power and real aspirations to try and make things better for so many years haven't been able to do it. Do you think, I know you talked there Gav about people sort of feeling alone and I think that's really lovely that people felt like they could come and reach out to you and say that they did, they felt less alone. I think one of the things that struck me from speaking to you about this is that I suppose that not knowing in the beginning really where you stand because it was your first child yes. and you know yeah. you're sort of and it was also height of the pandemic as well and you're kind of wondering is the being at home kind of you yeah. know and, and, and there's so the many questions every child it? develops at their own rate and even those who do end up getting diagnosed yeah. with autism they all uh, present in different ways or it might manifest in different ways and there's a line that I said I said in radio but it's worth just repeating because it's true uh, when you've met an autistic person you have met one autistic person because you cannot presume for a moment that some of the ways it presents for them are universal or or would necessarily show up mm. um for anyone else and like it, and it's it's just a point that's really worth um stressing because um as a side tangent one thing that I've seen before which as the parent of a child with autism like would really just gall you uh, was the idea that some um, in some educational settings, and I want to preface this by saying that most people in education, almost all of them, really go in there with the best of intentions to yeah. to do as best they can for their kids. But um, I've known some instances where children who are in autism classes are all given ear defenders. And like for a lot of kids, that would make a really tricky situation all the more aggravating because a lot of children with autism don't shirk away from sensory stimulus Mm. they go looking for it they're sensory seekers so Mm. denying them that level of stimulus is only going to aggravate them even worse and it's going to distress them in ways that you didn't need to Um, I've totally lost my train of thought Well I was going to just sorry I was trying to get you around to though um, the conversation about early intervention because so like you guys were really in tune and and, uh, people might not know Gav's wife Kira, but she's an educator as well and is very tuned Mm. in and Kira sort of was able to you know really I suppose see a lot of telltale signs and everything and, and take action but there might be parents I'm conscious like listening to the podcast this week who might be starting to look at their little one and maybe mm. ask questions. Um, is there any advice that you can give them in terms of that or, or you know, well, like I suppose you kind of, you've, you've listed them in, in the piece you did on radio about the things that you should know, but how do you get to that stage of getting the interventions that you need early on? The the best thing to do if, if you have some concerns or if you think that some kind of intervention might be warranted, the first thing to do is if you go on the HSE website and look up the details of the CDNTs, there is a, a contact email 
for each of them. Now, ordinarily, um, a lot of, sorry, I shouldn't say ordinarily because again, it presumes that things are universal and they're mm. not. But in in many cases, um, an update with the public health nurse who will see your child periodically through their childhood, that might be the point at which you can express your concerns. If the public health nurse agrees, they can have you sent on for an assessment of need. If not, you can still try to contact them and, and seek an assessment of need off your own bat or ask a GP to do it for you anyway. Um, the thing which is has been really depressing about the, the scale of the replies that we've gotten in is that I mentioned in passing that the average waiting time for an assessment of need right now across the country mm. is 19 months. It's supposed to be six by law. You, you are entitled to an assessment of need mm. within six months and the average time is 19. And some people who've gotten in touch with me since um, who were thanking me for giving voice to their, their challenges. Their own experience, yeah. Mm. Uh, we're saying like God, they would only love if it were as little as 19 months. Um, there was one instance where somebody got in touch. I, I won't, uh, obviously I won't identify them personally because I don't know if they'd want me to. Um, but they were pointing out that in their area, the assessments of need that are being offered now were people who were referred to their books in spring of 2019. Mm. Stop. Four it's years a different ago. era entirely, that like the, almost. The, yeah. they are, the average waiting time in that area for an assessment of need is over 48 months. And and here here's the really galling bit. Now, it doesn't matter because every, it should be universally quicker anyway. Mm. But what's particularly galling in this instance is that that's the CDNT in Blanchardstown, yeah. which is the home constituency of the Taoiseach, which is the hometown of the cabinet minister responsible for this area, Roderick O'Gorman. Now, I'm not saying for a second that they should intervene to benefit their own above anyone else. But what does it illustrate that you can grow up and be a neighbour of the two people who have the most power to affect good change and the waiting time for an assessment of need, but let alone the therapies you might need afterwards, even to get assessed takes four years. Someone else going to touch afterwards about a child who um, had been assessed incorrectly first time. They had to go and fight to get a second assessment. They got their assessment of need and the statement of service, but they're proposing to start delivering the therapies in five and a half years. Mm. Richard, like this is a it's, downright it's, feeling. It's, it is, and it's an assessment of need. Is Literally, like need is absolutely the crucial word mm. in any of these mm. things. And the fact is that it's almost now come across as this thing which people are expected to just get on with. Like these are crucial early interventions mm. based on these assessments, which can have a huge impact on quality of life. And I just find it, I, it does baffle me that there isn't more political outrage about these things. Like, I know we have these big issues that come up in society, but why isn't this one? Why mm -hmm. isn't this one which has people outraged? Why isn't it one that we hear, you know, big debates in the doll about? We just don't. We don't. And I do, I've covered many protests with families that have come to the gates of Leinster House and there's some families that I meet time and time again. I'm thinking of there's two specific families I'm thinking of and I meet those families every 12 months, every two years. I see them. Mm. They're still asking for the same services. They're still asking for the same things. And you're going, oh, I'm meeting you again. You still didn't get sorted now four or five years later. You're going, how is this parent still dragging their poor children up to the gates of Leinster House looking for mm. basic access to basic yeah. needs? And like, this is what my fourth time interviewing you in the last few years. Like, this is mental. And, and maybe to, to go back to where we started, maybe we'll finish on this. Maybe the yeah. reason why there isn't this kind of mass movement or it doesn't become this thing that there is national outcry for is because a lot of parents feel like they're, they're doing it alone mm. and they don't realise mm. just how nationwide, how universal these frustrations are. And uh, that they don't realise that actually there are some support networks or some collectives where they can get in touch and at least network and try and lean on the shoulders of of other parents who are going through the same thing. And, and maybe if there is some benefit that can come out of the whole thing that I that I did the other day, I'm, I'm not expecting the system to suddenly reform overnight. I know it can't be done that quickly. Um, I, I fear in truth whether it can be done at all. 
Um, but at the very least, if it means that people know they're not the only ones who are out there and that there are others with whom they can get in touch and at least feel less lonely about the journey, then, then I hope it'll have been worth it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. President Trump is joining some of the most incredible people in history being arrested today. Um, Nelson Mandela was arrested, served time in prison. Jesus, Jesus was arrested and murdered by uh, the Roman government. There have been many people throughout history that have been arrested and persecuted by radical, corrupt governments. And it's beginning today in New York City. Um, and I just can't believe it's happening, but I'll always support him. He's done nothing wrong. Sorry. He's done nothing wrong. Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greene, representative from the state of Georgia. Just about Donald Trump. Compare Donald Trump to Jesus. And Mandela. So clear. Trump, really Mandela, like, Jesus in well, that order. That's, that's quite the collective. I mean, Rich, you, you spent a lot of time in America in the run up to the last midterms and you spent a lot of time rubbing shoulders with those. These are my were, people. Who are of similar <laughs> mind yeah. to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, they, they will genuinely see the process of somebody facing trial with the presumption of innocence until guilt is proven. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They will see this as some illustration or some edifice of like some corrupt new world order that wants to overturn the one guy to make America Ooh. great again. They've totally glamorized it. They really have. Um, they have, there's a persecution complex there and obviously like Donald Trump has done this for a long, long time. He has decried things as a witch hunt for a long, long time. This mm. is another witch hunt in his view. Just to, just to, to bring people up to speed, this is, we had a little bit of history uh, on Tuesday night uh, yeah. in the um, in Manhattan, uh, in New York City. Uh, Donald Trump becoming the first former US president ever in the history of that country to face criminal charges in a courtroom. Uh, he was arrested ahead of that court appearance, uh, faced 34 counts relating to the payment of hush money to adult film star Stormy Daniels. So basically the, the nub of the charges is that he falsified business records and broke election laws in 2016 when he was first running for president to try and hide the payment of this money, mm-hmm. which was all coming out around the time where there was that tape, the, the access um, Hollywood tape, tape mm-hmm. grabbing by the P word um, tape. Mm. So this, we'll come, we'll come to it in a couple of minutes, but this is probably the least serious thing he's going to have to deal with legally for the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Which in itself is, is saying something. Uh, so like one of the, the things, just to illustrate how how relatively facile, although it's still a crime and is worth measuring. Like one of the things which he's now facing charges over is the idea that the hush money paid to Stormy Daniels actually should have been classified as a campaign donation. Yeah. Because mm. you were donating 130 or 140 grand's worth of silence to the campaign mm. and that therefore it should have been disclosed. Like it's it's not the sort of thing that's going to bring down the world. There's no limits to American political spending anyway. But that's the that's the level of crime that we're looking at here. 
And yet that's literally the least of his worries yeah, for the, the next couple of years. The least of his worries because, well, this thing, this thing isn't impacting him politically in the sense that the Republican, Republican supporters, Republican voters are now actually more likely, and polling has shown this, to vote for him now to be their nominee for president as a result of this because they see it as a witch hunt and unfair and politically motivated. Um, like it's one thing for it not to re- register. Like the, the persecution makes him more likely. More likely. He is the front runner. Um, for the for the for the nomination, but they think he's Jesus, like so obviously they do. And I met so many people who think Jesus. he was sent by God, uh, which is head spinning in so many ways for uh, such an earthy soul as Donald Trump. Um, so t- sent by God to do what? To, to, well, there's a lot of the it's to a lot make of Q America Anon great stuff. again. Yeah, that's it, pretty much. Um, it's divine providence of this country, <laughs> uh, the greatest country country on God's green earth, the only country that God cares about. Exactly, is America. Yeah, I mean it's funny, right. but it's so not funny. Like it's so not funny. It's like it's not funny how serious this is. It's not. So like this is all. If this goes to trial at all, this particular thing that will land smack bang in the middle of the 2024 election, in which he is going to be uh, the front runner to take on and beat Joe Biden potentially um, the other things which he's likely to face potentially charges on uh, relate to January 6th his role in instigating the Capitol Hill riots the potential insurrection there uh, another one around his attempt to overturn the election in 2020 mm. focusing on the state of Georgia which is actually where Marjorie Taylor Greene is from mm-hmm. uh, basically you, people might remember that phone call he made to a high level official there saying I just yeah. need to find find me 13,000 votes or whatever it was yeah, yeah. If, if you, mm. so if, I can if, win if you can manufacture 13,000 votes for me I win the election so please do that thanks so there's that one as well that's two big 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 things mm. then there's the other little matter of the stolen or the do- documents secret documents taken from the Oval Office brought to Mar-a-Lago and recent reporting would actually indicate that that one is actually even more serious than previously thought because he personally, according to reports, may have inspected the boxes <laughs> and told employees to mislead federal officials. This That bit was remarkable because he did an interview the other day with Sean Hannity from Fox News and Hannity tried to throw him a softball question which would allow him to present all of this as happenstance in which he was not involved. And he was like, no, 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 don't be under any illusions. I, I knowingly did this. I did this and I believe I'm entitled to do this and I do it again because his argument is as soon as I declassify it I have the power to just declare it so and then it's done but like so he's not trying to take any kind of procedural thing of like oh no they weren't meant to come but it's fine anyway he's like no 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 I did this and I'll do it again Sarah I would hate to be his lawyer (laughs) oh I'd hate it the man says the man is a loose cannon he will he will say things which would potentially incriminate anybody else. He's a nightmare. Sorry, just to say, you know Stormy Daniels did Vogue that she's done a yes, shoot with she Vogue. Yes, have yeah. seen this. Yeah, shot by Annie Leibovitz uh, wearing a Zach pose and gown, everything. Um, just going to give you some of the top lines from that. Um, oh my God, this is so grim. Um, adult <laughs> film star Stormy Daniels said former President Donald Trump attempted to seduce her with the world's worst Burt Reynolds impression as she joked nice. that she might become commander in chief one day. Uh, the porn star at the centre of the Trump hush money probe sat down with Vogue for a tell-all interview. She said, I don't know what happened. I'm standing there in the doorway of the bathroom and all of a sudden he is there in his underwear doing the world's worst Burt Reynolds impression. Daniels 44 told the fashion magazine of her 2006 dalliance with the 76-year-old Trump in his Nevada hotel suite. Um, yeah, I mean... Wow. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, it's a good read my, though. Favorite, just by the way, favourite Stormy Daniels thing of the last week was that it, it turns out that how they refer to her on Radio on the Gwaeltachta is Ashdor de Scanon de Dini Foster, an actor in films for grown-ups. 
Ah, that's which is like I, I love how they've they've just tried to make that as family friendly as possible. Enjoy like, that. Looking forward to their their them calling her like <laughs> said, Stormul McDonald or something. <laughs> she said he's smart, not like Einstein, but like he spoke with whole sentences. <laughs> Beautiful. Damn with wow. faint praise oh there. Um, so the circus around Donald Trump, I think circus is a proper word for it. It's yeah. going to continue. People might have seen the shots of like pro and anti Trumpers outside the courtroom facing off a lot of them in costumes some lad was dressed as Abraham Lincoln there's a guy who I actually know who is there not that I know but I met him before dressed as Uncle Sam big Trumpy QAnon guy uh, a lot of the old faces who follow this man around around, around the, the continent yeah. uh, still turning up for this man despite everything um, speaking of circuses circus the circus is coming to town circus next week coming to town oh yeah Joe Biden's itinerary well his, his, his loose itinerary at this yeah. point has been confirmed uh, we've known about this for a long time we've been talking about the Joe Biden visit here for well, we'll all be on the back of DFA buses now with pack lunches and Capri Suns next week. Oh, there's a back anno there to, to one of the earliest episodes of the group chat. They better about, have Capri Suns, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so so this, run us through the details of Gav. So he's flying into Belfast next Tuesday. He's doing 24 hours thereabouts of stuff in the north on the theme of the 25th anniversary of Good Friday, which of course is being marked this coming weekend, this going into Easter weekend. Um, then he is coming south of the border on Wednesday. He will be based for his overnights in Dublin, but there will be visits to County Louth, where he has cousins, including the Carnies, Dave and Rob, uh, the rugby players. Um, no, no other cousins, just the rugby players. And he will also be doing a public address somewhere in uh, County Mayo. Ballina, we, presume yeah. it, we presume it'll be in Ballina, but they haven't yet disclosed that. Where he has um, more cousins. Where he has more cousins, um, more than just Robin Dave Kearney, a whole succession of Blewetts. Go on, um, Rita Blewett. And uh, he will also be doing at, at least some other set piece things, including a courtesy call at Doris and Uchtheron, because that will be considered par for the course. There may be quite a few things at the American M- uh, Ambassador's Residence, which, of course, is just over the road Across from the road. course in the Phoenix Park. Um, there are some preliminary pre- preparations on the way in case his schedule allows him to address a joint sitting of the Dáil and Shannon. I'm going to ask about that, whether or not that was going to be on, because it's not a, it's not a state visit, it's an official it's an official visit. visit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is why that actually there's a real thing about whether if it's not an official visit, can you address the Oireachtas? Or can you still get away with addressing the Oireachtas if it's not a joint sitting of the Houses of the Oireachtas, if it's merely a sitting of the Dáil and Shannon? Because there's a difference, apparently. And you'd think I'd be one of the people who understood the difference, but no. Wow. I, I, anyone, even I do not understand the difference between a ceremonial sitting Shocking of the Shocking admission from Gavin Riley. And, and Dawn and Shannon. Uh, but as, as chair of the press gallery, it will be responsible up to me to try and mm. figure out who gets seats in the chamber for next well, week. Here. And there'll be an American traveling press crew as well. So if, if, if Joe Biden does address uh, the Dawn and Shannon or both houses of the Oireachtas or whatever way you want to put the terminology on it, what we've seen recently, obviously Ursula von der Leyen did that only a few months ago. And she had to sit there while um, people for profit, Richard Boyd Barrett in particular, yeah. um, and Matty McGrath did this as well, sort of called her up on policy matters and, you know, international things that he did not, they did not disagree or mm. that they did, did mm. not agree with yeah. the EU's position on. Are we likely to see RBB or, or Paul Murphy or, or or Thomas Pringle sort of, you know, Having knock lumps out of Joe Biden? Uh, <laughs> not physically, I presume, because the man is 80. In so a political just, sense. Just, yeah. just, just be gentle. Yeah. Um, that, uh, I think genuinely at this point, and this, this could be one of those things that go stale very quickly because by the time people get to see or listen to this, who knows? Um, but that prospect, I imagine is one of the reasons why at this point they're not sure whether such a visit will happen because if it means that you're you're coming in and you have to block off two hours to listen to opposition speeches from each of the 10 groupings and all, including those who are on the polar opposite side to you, then I imagine they might just decide that that's actually a little bit too much time out of his precious schedule. Sarah, um, we'll obviously be talking about this next week in whatever form we're doing it, but mm. it's a bit different to previous American president visits in that there's not that huge outpouring of 
angered that it would have accompanied a Bush or a Trump visit. No, and I wonder will there be people lining the streets? Because like, wonder. do you remember during Trump was. there really wasn't? I remember I was down in Beg when Trump came and like asking the locals, "Will you be out?" Like waving flags, and they were like, oh, "He's a good man, <laughs> good man. Is he a good man?" Well, plenty of jobs down here. Oh yeah, but is he a good president? I'd want to comment on that. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. But like, so they weren't out waving flags, you so know. There isn't that huge opposition to Biden from the public, generally speaking. Yeah. Uh, but there isn't that huge grow for him. There isn't that excitement. He doesn't have the, the Obama or the Clinton star yeah, right. Irishman. Yeah, I yeah. agree, yeah. So I wonder, wonder how this will all go. I suppose we'll yeah. find out next week. Looking forward to it. Can't wait. Pack your lunch. <laughs> Capri Sun's all around. <laughs> So this weekend, long weekend, Easter weekend, uh, actually being kickstarted on Virgin Media 2, uh, 7, 7.45, 7.30 is when coverage like you're begins. You're living your best life with this. We have, uh, the, the Bohemian FC takeover of Virgin Media Television has been complete. If anybody's been watching the sport <laughs> and news bulletins over the last number of days, couldn't help but notice the coverage of, of Bowes versus Shamrock Rovers in the Dublin Derby, the first Dublin Derby of the year between uh, its most storied clubs. And it's so Have weird. that shells and, uh, and, and pats. Have uh, that. And um, UCD. Yeah, and UCD. Um, uh, but no, which is like amazing because it's it's like a real sellout. So the only place, if you don't already have your tickets, the only place you can see it is live on Virgin Media 2, which first, is great. First yeah. live League of Ireland match on, on Virgin Media television. It's a, it's a real... It'll be, I'll be, I won't exciting. be watching this because I'll be there. Yeah. With a couple of other um, Virgin well, Media staffers who I'm bringing along for their first ever Dublin Derby. Well, I'm sorry I'm missing it now, I have to say. I have been talking about going to both games. I, I was invited and I just, I'm going to the theatre, but I will go the next time for sure. Need, need you turn a good Friday into a great Friday. Need, absolutely. Be careful that you don't end up, you know, bringing so many staff that you end up on camera doing all the punditry because no one can deal with your level of bias in that front. <laughs> <laughs> Complain to the BAI if you do it. Shameless. Have you any, have any, any anybody else have any plans um, for long games? I'm going to try and see Martin McDonough's play this weekend. Hangman, it's in the gate. Nice. So it's yeah, finishing up. Yeah, I'm really yeah. looking forward to it. I I watched in Bruges for the first time at the weekend, actually. I'd never seen oh, him before. It was very good. No, I hadn't seen him before. You know I'm not very, you know, but I'm, no. yeah, I'm getting there, though. <laughs> I'm getting there. Um, and then I'm going to West Cork to spend Easter with Grandad Joe, who's 90. So Grandad Joe's doing really well, actually. He's feeling much better. So yeah, Brilliant. he's doing good. Yeah. Very good. Gavin? Uh, I am working on Easter Saturday and I'm working on Easter Sunday and I'm working on Easter Monday. So you'll see me in the news at 5.30. Uh, uh, you'll be right and fresh then for Biden visit then next I week. I will, yes. Uh, a week that I was uh, supposed to be on annual leave. I was going uh, <laughs> <laughs> may or may not be happening now uh, in light of a visit of the President of the United States but um, sure them's the breaks um, but we are going to my in-laws in Kilkenny on Friday and ah. uh, trying to work around bulletins where we'll be going home to to Meath on Easter Sunday night which would be nice and uh, generally just like seeing how much chocolate the kids could actually digest before Combusting you know, before combusting, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what is breaking point for that? Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. and just it's seeing that you know, how, just just how much can they take in before it affects their mood as well as their their dippy tummies. So, um, full report next week on that. Yeah. I'm out to rush anyway. So, look, Are you? people of people of of North County, Dublin, Liz, look yeah, all good. Yeah, I'm delighted now she's mentioned on the podcast ah, for the very first time. Hello, happy and Jeffrey. This is this is getting weirdly personal now here, lads. But yeah, there you go. You started with the Bose thing between this is the basically the Richard Chambers special edition between. Jeffrey Liz and, and Bose getting the shout out in part four. We got them all. We, we got, got them all. all, we got all. Got them all. Uh, all the main players. <laughs> I hope I hope everybody out there does enjoy their long weekend, yeah. uh, whether you're Easter or chocolate or whatever your your religion or, or allegiance is for that weekend. <laughs> uh, we do hope you enjoy it all. Uh, we yes. will be back next week for probably a kind of Biden-y sort of special. Uh, we'll bring you behind the scenes of, I suppose, well, on which, you know, life on the road. If people want, want to get in early now and ask us questions about how the, sort of the material stuff of the pooling and all that works and we might be able to deal with them then in next week's pod. So if anyone wants to get in touch on any yeah. of our social channels about the nitty gritty of how all this works, get in touch, let us know. There you go. Oh. Homework for you all for the weekend. Yeah.
Gavin, Sarah, thank you very much indeed. Thank we'll you. be back next week. Bye. Bye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.